invite you to take your Bible, turn with me to the book of 2 Kings chapter 13. If you're visiting with us, we have been uh, for several months looking at the life and the ministry of the prophet Elisha. Uh, we conclude that series uh, this morning. Uh, we come to the last episode of Elisha's life, which is his death and the power that God uh, worked even through him after death. So here, God's word, 2 Kings chapter 13, reading together verses 14 through 25. This is the word of God. Now, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Israel, Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now, bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Nahaziel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. And he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. When Haziel, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, the cities that he had taken from Jehoahaz, his father, in war. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to help us as we study his word. The Lord our God. You know where each one of us is this morning in our relationship with you, in our relationship to life and death and eternity. Would you be pleased to use your word to open our eyes that we might see marvelous things, marvelous realities, that you would change us, transform us. Lord, those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, would you be gracious and merciful to them through the preaching of your word? Would you convert them, give them new hearts? And those who do know you, Lord, would you build them up, strengthen them in their faith? Would you comfort them and grant them faith and hope and love? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On February 21st, 2018, the Reverend Billy Graham died at the age of 99 and a half. Uh, many of you know his life story. He was born in November of 1918. He was in college during World War II. And at the end of the 40s, when he was in his late 20s, he began his evangelistic crusades. 
in God's providence, he became one of the most influential Christian leaders of the 20th century. Uh, through his popularity, through his crusades, he was able to meet with 12 consecutive U.S. presidents, beginning in 1950 with Harry Truman, and then Dwight Eisenhower, and then John F. Kennedy after him, Lyndon Johnson, uh, Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama. Did I leave anybody out? Twelve U.S. presidents in a row. Uh, with some of these presidents, he was even a very close spiritual advisor and confidant. 68 years is a long time to have influence uh, with the highest levels of government. Uh, well, this morning we come to the end of Elisha's life. Uh, he didn't serve as a prophet in Israel for 68 years, but it was at least over 50 years. You see, he, he came into his office when Elijah disappeared from the scene in around, around 850 BC, and Elisha served until the mid-790s BC. Over that period in Israel, there weren't 12 leaders, there were actually four, four kings of Israel. And the stories that we've been looking at from the book of Kings have primarily come from the first decade of Elisha's ministry when Joram, or Jehoram as he sometimes is called, the, the son of Ahab, was reigning as king over Israel. But in chapter 8, the author of the book of Kings has, has moved Elisha sort of off the stage. He's focused more on the southern kingdom of, of Judah. He's focused on uh, the reign of the kings of Israel that came after the sons of Ahab, Jehu and Jehoahaz, and the one mentioned here in our text, Joash or Jehoash. Now, though we don't have a record of Elisha's ministry during uh, these, these years, these decades, uh, yet it is certain that he was still active. Why? Well, because uh, though Jehu uh, had eradicated Baal worship and Jezebel from Israel, uh, yet uh, we still continue to read that the people of God in the northern kingdom of Israel still persisted on worshiping God in an idolatrous manner. Uh, they still clung to the sins of Jeroboam, the first king, worshiping these golden calves, uh, worshiping the one true God through golden calves. They still worshiped false and pagan gods. And so Elisha would have continued to minister to the people of God and to these kings, calling them to faith and to repentance, calling them back to God's word of grace and word of judgment. Elisha's influence in Israel, therefore, was far greater than even the influence of Billy Graham here in America. Indeed, as King Joash declares uh, in uh, the prophet's final days, you see it there in verse 14, Elisha himself was the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. He was the department of defense, as it were, in Israel. God had divinely caused him to be the source of Israel's power and protection. But now Elisha is about to die. And the author has brought him back onto the stage one last time so that we might learn from him one last time. This morning, I want you to see from this passage two things. This passage teaches us about death and it teaches us about resurrection. Let's look at those two things this morning. First, we learn about death. Now, before we look at Elisha's death, you may remember that his predecessor, Elijah, actually didn't die. Elijah was caught up bodily to heaven in a whirlwind. The only other person in human history who didn't experience death was Enoch. Back in Genesis chapter 5, we read that Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. 
Now, in a way that is hard for my small and finite mind to comprehend, it, it does seem that, that Elijah and Enoch and Jesus are the, are the only three humans who still have a body, even in glory. Every other deceased saint is a disembodied soul awaiting a new body on the last day. And that includes even Elisha. Verse 20 tells us that Elisha died. They buried him. Verse 21 tells us that eventually his flesh rotted away and all that was left of his body in the tomb was bones. But I want you to see first how Elisha died. Notice in verse 14, it wasn't a martyr's death as some of the prophets suffered. It wasn't a sudden death like being run over by a chariot or suffering a heart attack. No, at the end of Elisha's life, he got sick. He had an illness and his illness grew worse and worse and worse until he died from his illness. Now, this is amazing, isn't it? The man of God who had purified harmful waters, who had made a small jar of oil fill multiple vessels, who had made poisonous stew edible, who had multiplied barley loaves to feed a hundred men, who had healed Naaman of leprosy, who made the axe head to float from the bottom of the Jordan River onto the top of the Jordan River, who had raised to life the Shunammite woman's dead son, the miracle worker. He was not able to do a miracle to prevent himself from dying. The prophet of God was not able to keep himself from getting sick and dying. Now, of course, we know that none of Elisha's miracles were done by his own power. God was the one working, sometimes through Elisha, sometimes in response to Elisha's prayers. But the point remains, the prophet of God got sick. The holy man of God died like every other human being that has ever walked on planet earth, save two. Now there's a lesson here, isn't there? A lesson for us to learn from Elisha's sickness. It clearly teaches us that those who teach that you can name it and claim it and, and be free from sickness, prevent all sickness. That is far from biblical. It is most unbiblical to, to, to say, to teach that if you're sick, it's because you don't have enough faith or it's because your loved one doesn't have enough faith. If you're sick, it's because you're harboring, you must be harboring some secret sin. Have you ever heard these things? Have you ever thought these things? Have you heard others teach these things? The Bible nowhere teaches that. Now, to be sure, Paul does tell us in 1 Corinthians that some were sick and died even because of the way they mishandled and, and misapproached the Lord's Supper. Clearly, the Israelites and even Elisha's day were, were suffering at the hands of the Syrians because of their ongoing idolatry. Yes, it is true that in some cases, people are sick and suffer because of sins that they themselves have committed. But it's not always Paul writes of Epaphroditus in the book of Philippians, who was sick and nearly died. And, and now at one point does Paul indicate that his sickness was due to sin. Think of Job. He was struck by boils, by Satan. And he was struck even though, or really we could say because he was an upright and a righteous man. Think of the disciples of Jesus in John chapter 9 when they came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he was born blind. And Jesus answered by saying, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, 
but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. You see, sickness and suffering come to all of us because we live in a fallen world. Now, it's true. The world has fallen because of Adam's sin. And there are times, yes, where we do get sick. We do suffer due to the natural consequence or even the divine consequence of some foolish or sinful choice that we make. To be sure, we all deserve far worse than we actually receive because of our sin. But none of us can see someone else's heart. Right? None of us know whether a person is sick because God is judging them for something that they have done. And as Jesus told his disciples, and as Paul reiterates in Romans 8, 28, God is sovereign over all sickness and suffering. It's not that, that if we're sick, that, that we're somehow outside of God's will. No, God has sovereignly ordained sickness and even death to accomplish his good purposes in the lives of of his people. So there's a lesson here in Elisha's sickness, but there's even more a lesson in the fact of Elisha's death. You see, if even Elisha, the prophet, was unable to prevent death, then you can be sure that you will die as well. None of us can prevent the day of our death. We know this, don't we? And yet it hit close home even this week in the passing of our brother, Mike Nyswinger. Several of you had family members who passed away over the holidays. Hebrews 9, verse 27, states it plainly, unambiguously. It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. When Adam fell, God declared, you are dust, and to dust you will return. Death is the wages of sin. It is what we have earned. And all of us have sinned, both in Adam and in our own Choices and actions and thoughts and words and emotions. Psalm 90 verse 10 puts it this way. As for the days of our light, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone and we fly away. Psalm 103 that we've sung this morning and Isaiah 40 compare us to the grass of the field, the flower of the field, here today and gone tomorrow. Psalm 144 compares us to a breath to vapor, to a mist, to a passing shadow. The whole book of Ecclesiastes is all about the fleeting nature of life. That word vanity, vanity of vanities. It's the same word that Psalm 144 uses and is translated breath. Breath, vapor, mist, something temporary, something elusive. That's exactly what life is. And so Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the end of every man, woman, boy, and girl. And the living take it to heart. Every single one of us will die. And yet, if you pay attention, don't you see from time to time, even regularly, how companies are researching, how can we cause people to live forever? People spend crazy amounts of money right, on anti-aging techniques and processes and products to live forever. And from one perspective, this research, these products, we're thankful for them. Right? And yet, to ignore the fact that you are hurtling closer and closer every day to your death, even if you follow the best anti-aging routine in the world, to forget that, to neglect it, to deny it, to ignore it, is the epitome of foolishness. Wisdom is to pray with David in Psalm 39 these words, Lord, make me to know my end 
and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Or with Moses in Psalm 90, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. You are going to die just like Elisha died. Part of my responsibility as your pastor is to prepare you to die, to prepare you to die well in the Lord, in faith and hope. And so the question that this text puts before us is this, how do you live in light of this inevitable fact of death? Do you live in fear of it? Do you do all you can to deny it, to ignore it, to fight against it? Or do you have a peace, a peace that passes all understanding as you face this final day, as you see it drawing near more and more quickly? This peace comes only from knowing Jesus Christ, the prophet greater than Elisha, the prophet who came to die on a Roman cross, but he didn't stay dead. He rose victoriously from the grave on the third day after his death so that everyone who puts their trust in him might be freed from the sting of death, which is sin, might be freed from the fear of death, might be freed from the power of death. Which brings us to the second thing I want you to see from this passage, not just death, but resurrection. You notice that after Elisha dies, they bury him. Now, in those days, they didn't bury people like we do in caskets and, and down six feet under the ground. They would bury them in a cave or in a tomb that had been cut out of a rock. And well, some time has passed, maybe a year or two. The author tells us that Elisha's body had decomposed. It was now just bones. He also tells us that it's springtime. And in the springtime at this season of Israel's existence, uh, there were these marauding bands of Moabites who would invade the land and take the harvest and, and just wreak havoc there amongst the people. Well, uh, there happened to be a group of Israelites who were burying one of their friends, this man. We don't know his name. We don't know what he did for a living. We don't know how old he was when he died. But what we do know is that during the burial, one of these marauding bands of Moabites showed up on the scene. So whatever plans they had for his burial, his funeral service, right, were jettisoned out the window. They throw his body hastily into another grave. Well, it just so happens that the other grave into which they threw him was Elisha's grave. Now, doesn't text, the text doesn't tell us whether they knew it was Elisha's grave or not. They probably were just trying to get out of there as quickly as they possibly could to not be killed or robbed by the Moabites. But look at verse 21. As soon as the dead man touched the bones of Elisha, he came to life. He revived. He stood on his feet. Now, can you imagine what this man must have thought? Why am I in a cave full of bones, Right? If his friends had, had you know, sort of tossed him and started running, he probably was like, hey guys, wait for me. If, if they saw him stand up, what must they have been thinking? Right? They were probably more afraid of what they just saw than the Moabites that were invading. But their fear would mix with joy because now their friend who used to be dead is now alive. He's back to life. They have no idea how it happened, but here he is. They thought he was dead and he was is now alive. The text doesn't answer any of the questions that you probably have about this story, unfortunately. What's going on here? Why, why did this happen? Why did God want to include this remarkable event here in the book of Kings? Elisha is dead, yet God brings life through his body. It's as if God is saying to his people, though my prophet is dead, my word through him is still mighty to save powerful to create life. Imagine being one of the first readers of the book of Kings. This book was written during the, the time of exile. 
When Judah was in Babylon, there in the, the 500s BC, imagine being the first readers. You had been thrown into a grave, as it were. You were in exile, away from the land of Israel. The resurrection of this man, this little story, this one little couple of verses, would have been a great encouragement to you. That there was still hope. Hope, first, for your, your national resurrection. Right? That, but a hope that would only come through the words of of the prophets who spoke for God. It would only come through clinging to the words of dead prophets. Now, the same hope was, was given at around the same time that this book was being written, when it was published, that these exiles probably would have heard from a living prophet, the prophet Ezekiel. They would have heard of his vision in Ezekiel chapter 37 and the, the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. Some of you know this story, how God called Ezekiel to preach to a bunch of dead bones Ezekiel didn't really make much, doesn't make much sense to him, but he said, I'll do it, Lord. And he preached, and as he preached, the bones came together. The bones grew muscle and flesh and sinew and tendon and ligament, skin. They came to life because God had called him to preach to the bones, saying that he was going to cause spirit to enter into them that they might live. Ezekiel tells us that God's people there in exile were saying this, our bones are dried up and our hope is perished. But God, through this story, through Ezekiel's message, was declaring that his spirit, through the word of his prophets, would create new life. What a source of hope this would be for the people of God corporately. But this encouragement wasn't just a corporate encouragement. It was also an individual encouragement. Remember Elijah and Elisha both were instrumental in, in bringing people who were dead back to life during their ministries. And so it's fitting that a resurrection occurs at the very last mention of Elisha here in the Old Testament. All of these resurrection stories that we read in Elijah and Elisha's ministries point us where? They point us forward to the resurrection that Jesus would accomplish first in his own ministry. He raised people from the dead. And not just during his ministry, but after he died. Do you remember the little story in Matthew chapter 27? It says this, the earth shook when Jesus died. The rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now think about this. People who had died, we have no idea how long they had been dead. But when Jesus died on the cross, just like when Elisha died, this man comes to life. When Jesus died on the cross, people in the tombs in Jerusalem came to life. And after the resurrection, they came out of their tombs and they talked to people. Could you imagine? Could you imagine what that must have been like? Those little resurrections were a little foretaste of the glorious day of resurrection when Jesus Christ, who had died but didn't stay dead, who himself conquered the grave and came back to life, that Jesus Christ is going to return again and he is going to bring in his wake a new body for each and every one of those who trust in him. Because Jesus is alive, death has no ultimate dominion over the people of God who hope in Jesus. We have a prophet who has triumphed over the grave, a savior whose flesh did not rot away. 
who came back to life by his own power. Death will not have the final word for those who cling to the word of Jesus Christ. He is the first fruits, as we've read from 1 Corinthians this morning, the first fruits of a great harvest of resurrection that is going to occur when he comes again. We will have new bodies, immortal bodies, imperishable bodies, glorious bodies that can never die or suffer or get sick again. This is our hope. Hebrews chapter 9 continues on, doesn't it? Just as it's appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. If you are a Christian this morning, a disciple of Jesus, are you eagerly waiting for him? Are you longing for his return? That's how we're called to live now. A people eager. We see this story of the bones of Elisha even bringing someone back to life. And our hearts ought to, to rise up with joy and say, that is my destiny. That is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to come back to life. After I die, I'll have a new body. We're called to wait eagerly for this Savior. But there's some other ways that this text even, as we apply these truths, they point us to how we're to live before we die. Notice, it's a weird story. We don't have time to go into the, all the details of it. But this story of Joash, who didn't strike the Lord's arrow of victory over Syria enough times, this little story is designed to point us that as we live here and now, before we die, we are to live with a vigorous, robust faith. And you, you read that story and you think, huh, how was Joash supposed to know how many times to strike the arrows to the ground with? But clearly, Elisha, who got angry at him, assumed that he should have known. And it makes sense, doesn't it? If, if he's just shot an arrow through a window and Elisha has it interpreted saying, this is the arrow of the Lord's victory over Syria. This is the arrow of your victory. Don't you think that he should have been a little more excited about that, right? It, not just for, yeah, 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 I'll strike, I'll strike it three times and I stopped. He stopped, he stopped striking. It would be like a coach walking into a locker room and saying, you know, we're the champion, we're gonna win. And it was like, yeah, yeah. Like, What? You've just won the championship. Where's the excitement? Where's the zeal? Where's the hope and the faith? And that's what's going on here. His half-hearted response meant he was only going to strike the Syrians three times. It's like God giving you a blank check and you write it for $150. You get a Toys R Us spinning spree and you come out with like a Lego set and two board games. What? God calls us in light of the victory of Jesus Christ over the grave. We are to live with a vigorous faith. We are to go forth into the world, as Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, knowing that because of what Jesus has done, we can be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil in the Lord is not in vain. And that vigorous faith, as you see here in the text, is to be grounded in God's covenant of grace. Did you hear the reference in verse 23? In spite of Israel receiving what they deserved at the hands of the Syrians, the text tells us the Lord was gracious to them. He had compassion on them. He turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now, written from the perspective of the days of Jehoahaz and Jehoash. 
But even when God does eventually cast his people into Assyria, into Babylon in exile, it's because of these same covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that God brings them back into their land after exile. And why does he do that? But so that he can send his son, Jesus Christ, as the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the recipient of all those glorious promises. He sends his son at the fullness of the times so that Jesus might save his people out of all the nations from all of our sins. God is gracious. He is compassionate to ingrates, to ungrateful, selfish sinners. And so our faith, our vigorous faith rests in the covenant of grace. Then you love what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. If it's the craziest line, he says, I worked harder than all of them. It would be like me saying like, I'm the best pastor at Perry Orchard Presbyterian Church. Like what? But then he immediately says, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. The faith that we have. Now, Paul wasn't boasting there, right? He wasn't sinning with what he said, but he was affirming that he was working hard. He was striving because of what Jesus had done for him, but he did it only because of the grace of the gospel. And so if you're a Christian this day, if you know that when you die, as we've sung, death is but your entrance into glory, and you know that on the last day you're getting a new body, that ought to impel you into the world vigorously with all effort to bring this glorious gospel to the lost. Some of you here this morning are still dead in your sins. You're still a slave to Satan. You are still under God's wrath and curse. You await a resurrection as well. But Jesus says it is a resurrection to judgment. Our plea with you is that you would turn away from your idols, that you would turn to Jesus and be saved, that you would flee from all the sin that in your own heart you know is weighing you down, that you would flee to the one who can save you from your sins, who can give you a fearlessness in the face of death, who will give you a new body, a body like unto his glorified body that will never suffer any longer. Our hope for you, our prayer for you, is that you would come to know the Savior who has captured our hearts, who has won us to himself by grace through faith. And that faith is a gift. He gives it freely and graciously. May the Lord be pleased to encourage the hearts of us as people right, as we see that we will die, but we will be raised from the dead, through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Would you change us by it? Would you transform us by your truth and grace together for the glory of Jesus Christ? In his name we pray. Amen.